Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today on Seizing Life, we address the topic of infantile spasms through a panel of experts who bring a range of knowledge, perspectives, and experiences with IS. Our panel includes Dr. Renee Shellhaus, a pediatric neurologist and director of research at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital at the University of Michigan, Kari Rosbeck, the president and CEO of the TSC Alliance, and one of the founders of the Infantile Spasms Action Network. Beth Dean, the CEO of Cure Epilepsy, and in this episode, I will have a dual role serving as both host and contributor. Dr. Shellhaus, Kari, Beth, thank you all so much for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Shellhaus, I'm going to start with you with a very sort of basic introduction. What is infantile spasms or West syndrome, and are they the same thing? And then how prevalent is the syndrome? Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. This is such an important topic and I'm I'm glad to speak about it. Infantile spasms is a very important kind of seizure that is rare in that it happens in around one in two or 3,000 babies. Um, Most often when they're between four and eight months of age, but can happen up to about age two. And it's a specific kind of seizure where a baby will have what we call a cluster or a repeated pattern of events where they may um, arch or come forward with their head and and sometimes their arms. Um, Most often as they're falling asleep or as they're waking up from sleep. And this particular kind of seizure is a hallmark or a feature of something called West syndrome, but can happen uh, without having all of the, the features of West syndrome. Um, West syndrome is having infantile spasms, this particular kind of seizure, as well as a particular kind of pattern on uh, a brainwave test called an EEG. So that brainwave pattern is called hypsarrhythmia and having uh, abnormal development. So many children with infantile spasms will have those three things together, but there are also a lot of children who will simply have infantile spasms without having West syndrome. Interesting. So you said they most commonly appear between ages four to eight months, but they can happen a little later. So you talked about what a parent should look for, these sort of different movements and arching. How easy is it for a parent or caregiver to spot those movements? Because, you know, sitting here, you know, is that you know, reflux? Is it, you know, it could be a bunch of different things. And I think as parents, so often we're trained that um, we might be overreacting or looking for things that aren't there. So how do you know when it is infantile spasms, when it is a seizure and when it's something else? It's a really great question. So I think the first thing is, as a parent, you know your baby the very best. You're an expert on what their usual behavior is. And infantile spasms doesn't look like your baby's usual behavior. Um, Infantile spasms and other kinds of seizures tend to happen as the same thing over and over again as a pattern. It doesn't happen just one time. It happens in clusters. It'll happen over and over again over a period of minutes or sometimes even up to an hour, but several times a day so that a baby may have these 100 times a day at the beginning. Um, 
But the most important thing is it looks different from what your baby normally does. Um, and that each time it looks about the same as the time before. I think bottom line though is, if you're worried that your baby is having infantile spasms, you have to ask for help. Because without having a neurologist take a look at your baby and without having an EEG, that brainwave test, uh, to help confirm the diagnosis, we really don't know for sure. And so the stakes are high enough that if you're worried, you really should be seeking out help. Yeah, I, I think for us on our journey with my daughter, Adelaide, when she was um, first diagnosed, it was she had had a seizure first, but sort of a general seizure. We didn't, no one had mentioned infantile spasms to us. We weren't looking for it. I had never heard of it before. But what we noticed, she had, she was, she had hypotonia, so low muscle tone, and she had difficulty holding her head regardless. But we started knowing, noticing these repetitive head drops that even though, and it, it was more than her just not being able to hold her head up like usual, or she would get tired or it was, it, it was almost like syncopated and it started happening more and more frequently. We would notice it a couple times. It would cluster and it would be like, is that something? Is it not something? And we let it go. Looking back, she was probably doing some, she was probably having some form of these clusters for a week or two before it got bad enough that it was happening so regularly and so um, rhythmically that we were able to recognize that this was so much more than hypotonia. And we called the doctor and, and she suggested that we bring her into the emergency room so that we could get her admitted. Is that generally the, the experience that you see? So it certainly can be. And I think it's a, you're telling a sort of a classic story of a new onset of infantile spasms. I think the other thing that um, oftentimes parents will be able to comment on in hindsight is that their, their baby doesn't feel as bright. Um, they're not as engaged, or maybe they're not, their tone might not be as good as it used to be or they're, you know, they used to be able to, to sit up or roll over and they're not doing that anymore. And so that we call developmental regression or loss of abilities is also a red flag. So if somebody's baby is having these kind of repetitive events where they might have head drops or their arms coming up um, and the baby seems to have regression, that would be a, a big concern. So what are the challenges that parents might face when getting that accurate diagnosis? Because I know that in speaking with other parents who have had children diagnosed with infantile spasms, I've heard horror stories of trying to get a diagnosis. So what is it that can make it so difficult to get that diagnosis? Well, I think like you said at the beginning, babies do all kinds of different behaviors, right? And it's more likely that a baby's gonna have reflux than infantile spasms because reflux is a very common thing for babies to have. Um, and so I think oftentimes we sort of look at each other as parents and we, we look at other kids and we say, gosh, is it, are we, should we be worried or, or are we confident enough to say there's something definitely wrong? Um, and, you know, pediatricians most oftentimes see normal babies too. And so, you know, the, the first instinct is that common things are common. And so most likely baby's going to be fine. I think the, um, the follow-up there is, again, using your gut as a parent. If you don't think your baby's okay, then you need to push harder. Um, and I think also that most of the time, babies who develop infantile spasms have had 
other challenges already in their life. Not always, but most of the time. Um, and so if you know that your baby's already had a seizure, for example, and they're young and a young infant, you might be, you might have been counseled or you might ask about infantile spasms as a possibility. Or if you know your baby had neonatal seizures or tuberous sclerosis syndrome, for example, um, your pediatrician or your neurologist um, or any other caregiver might be able to have a clue to ask. Where it gets really tough is if you have a baby who you, ne you didn't know and this was the first thing that came up. Um, and they're, again, pushing hard um, to get a diagnosis if something's wrong. And having um, access to a phone uh, that you can take a video and show to somebody can sometimes really seal the deal. Yeah, I, you know, taking that video is so, so important. So you, you, but you have to advocate. You have to have the fight for your child. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Did you know that one in 26 Americans will develop epilepsy in their lifetime? For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has funded cutting-edge, patient-focused research. Learn more about our mission to end epilepsy at cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. So how is infantile spasms diagnosed? What is that uh, diagnostic journey look like? Sure thing. So the gold standard, if you will, for infantile spasms is going to be having an EEG, a brainwave test, and have the baby do the event in question and have an infantile spasm. And that has a specific pattern that we typically will see on EEG. And usually um, it's pretty obvious um, that that event is associated with sort of a, what we call a decrement. So all of the brainwaves kind of slow down and, and get quiet for a second or two. And it happens in a pattern in a, in a a repeated pattern for, for a particular baby. Um, and very often between the seizures, the EEG is also very abnormal. So that's the standard. Um, we know though that sometimes, and depending on where you live, it may not be easy to get to an EEG right away. Um, and actually as part of response to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, professional societies did come out with what we called crisis standards of care for diagnosis of infantile spasms, um, where we can use the video and the story and talking with, with a family to make a presumptive diagnosis. But the gold standard is really the EEG. And you talked about hypsarrhythmia earlier as one of the diagnostic pieces that often goes hand in hand with infantile spasms. What, what is that? Sure. So hips arrhythmia is a very abnormal EEG pattern um, where the, the brain waves are chaotic. So they're not organized like a normal, like a normal baby's uh, brain waves would be. Um, and that have what we call spikes. Um, so abnormal patterns that are associated with seizures in anybody, but then combined with a story of infantile spasms um, helps us to make the diagnosis. I will say though, that up to a third of babies who have infantile spasms do not have hips arrhythmia on EEG. Uh, so if the concern is really high and the baby doesn't have hips arrhythmia, we still need to push hard to get a, a good diagnosis because the treatment um, is about the seizure, not about the EEG. Oh, that's fascinating. I wasn't aware of that. So what are the risks at play if um, the longer that diagnostic journey takes? Oftentimes parents will ask me, you know, are those seizures hurting my baby? Um, and it's hard to watch a baby have a seizure, um, even if it's only a second or two at a time. 
those individual seizures, those individual infantile spasms are not hurting the baby. But the longer that the baby goes without diagnosis and treatment for infantile spasms, the higher their risk of having long-term developmental problems um, and the higher their risk of having long-term epilepsy that's hard to treat. So the flip side is the sooner we make the diagnosis and the sooner we start effective therapy, the better the baby's chance is of having a good outcome. Now, Kari, we touched a little bit earlier on you know, this comorbidities and, you know, with tuberous sclerosis in particular, can you sort of explain um, the, that connection between IS and TSC and what is TSC? Sure. Tuberous sclerosis complex or TSC is a rare genetic disorder that causes tumors to grow throughout the body. So predominantly the brain, heart, kidney, liver, lung, skin. It is the leading genetic cause of epilepsy. So about 85% of individuals with TSC will have epilepsy. The brain dysfunction in TSC really impacts quality of life from seizures to developmental delays and intellectual disabilities to behavioral challenges and infantile spasms. So about a third of infants with TSC will develop infantile spasms. Wow. So is that community educated on infantile spasms? Is this something then that they are told to be on the lookout for? 100%. And I think as we have furthered our research in TSC and really understood that Babies with TSC can actually be diagnosed in utero with the appearance of two or more heart tumors. So they'll receive a probable diagnosis in utero if it appears on a just a routine ultrasound. And so those babies, hopefully, will be sent to a neurologist at birth for a confirmed diagnosis. And then we work really hard with the neurology, child neurology community, and through our own social media, our website, to really engage in educating those families. Really important, as you were talking earlier, Kelly, what can families do to advocate? Um, other than taking a video, it's going and educating yourself about what infantile spasms might look like. So as you all were talking about, it can be as simple as a head nod that if you're not watching, you can miss. So it's really important um, for us at the TSC Alliance to educate our community, for child neurologists to educate the community. And then we have a cadre of volunteers on social media that are, as soon as somebody comes to our Facebook page, they jump in and educate parents as well. So it's kind of a three-part educational series there. Well, and I, I can see just how important research can be because if we can figure out which babies are higher at risk of developing infantile spasms in utero, then we can inform those parents and educate those parents so that they can be on the lookout so we can get that diagnosis sooner. So doctor, can you explain what that treatment looks like? Over the last five or 10 years, we've really made great advances in understanding what the standard treatments are for infantile spasms. And what we found as a, as a research community is that there are three standard approaches for infantile spasms. There is a, a medicine that's an injectable high-dose uh, steroid called ACTH. Um, there is an oral medicine that's prednisolone or another steroid that we can give by mouth. And then there's a specific medicine called Vigabatrin. Those three medicines all um, can work for infantile spasms treatment. 
everything else that we have tried has failed. Um, so really important um, for the child neurology community to know there are only three choices. Um, and there are reasons that you might pick one of those three. For example, there's some really good data to suggest that babies who have tuberous sclerosis complex respond best to vigabatrin. And so that's going to be my first choice if I know the baby has, has TS. Um, for other babies, it's a little bit less clear, um, but starting with one of those three medicines is certainly the, the way to go. And the way that we do that is we um, we hit them hard at the beginning with high doses of medicine. Um, and within about a week, usually we, we have a sense of whether it's working or not. Um, by 14 days of treatment, we're reassessing, we're looking at that EEG again, and we're talking to parents to say, are you seeing any more seizures? And if things are starting to get better, then we can start to slowly actually taper down if they've been on either oral steroids or ACTH um, so that they have a month of their first line treatment. And in the best case scenario, the spasms are gone, baby does well, and we watch them really carefully, but they do well in the long run. If, however, at you know that 14-day mark or before then, things are getting worse or not getting better, we may switch to a different one of those three treatments um, to see if we can get a better response. I understand that some of those medications can also be used together in conjunction. I've personally read some studies that say to use bigabitrin and ACTH together. All of these drugs really stink, <laughs> I think is the really nice way to put it. Um, they all have pretty scary side effects. And I think that when the doctors are talking to parents and caregivers about these drugs, they can be pretty scary. What sort of reassurances can you provide? You know, a spasm can look, you know, pretty not so bad compared to what these side effects of these drugs can be. Why is it so important for a parent to put their kid on one of these kind of scary drugs? It's a really good question. And, you know, all of the medicines that we use have side effects, for sure. Um, and that's why sticking with one of the three standard therapies is so important that we don't want to give a baby one of the medicines that we now know doesn't work and expose them to potential side effects from, from those medicines that don't work. For the ones that we do have, um, yes, they have scary sounding, sounding side effects and they are scary side effects. For the most part, we can mitigate those. And for families who are going to have ACTH or oral steroids as their first line treatment, um, the main thing that we see is really fussy, cranky babies. Um, and they're hungry because steroids make us hungry. Um, and although it's easy from my end to say this, what I say to families is go ahead and feed them. If they're hungry, we're just going to feed them and they're going to gain weight. That's okay. And remind ourselves that this is temporary right? That we're going to be on high dose steroids only for a few weeks. And those weeks I know can seem like forever, but it is temporary. And if in the long run, that's the right treatment, it's going to take care of these seizures. We'll all be glad that we did it. Um, we also talk about self-care for parents and who can we rely on um, when we need a break, um, especially if the baby's really cranky and fussy, you know, one can mom or dad step away and have a nap or go for a walk um, to make sure that we're really supporting because this is this is tough. Um, and oftentimes it's really throwing into a community that families weren't, 
you know, associated with before and just finding your people to help support is really important. And um, for Vigabitrin, it has a separate set of side effects and we talk very carefully about those. Um, the main one that families need to be aware of is the possibility of visual field loss. What does that mean? It means that for some people who take this medicine for a long period of time, they have they don't see well on the outside uh, generally on the outside of their their vision um, and that doesn't get better if it happens the good news is that um, the less time that you need the medicine the less likely it is that that visual field loss is going to happen um, and overall the feeling in the community is that um, the risk is worth the potential benefit um, to make sure that we're doing the right thing for baby. Now you said, you know, what about giving combination therapy? And there, there are some data to suggest that you might get a faster response with combination therapy. Um, there are still more studies to be done to really understand the very best way to do that, but it's certainly something that some places will offer. Um, and families should talk about what are the pros and cons of starting with two drugs all at once versus starting with one and then quickly switching to another one if it doesn't work. If I could add, Kelly, to that with bigabitrin that's used a lot in the TSC community, we often say stopping infantile spasms is so important. Um, they may not be able to drive, which is the concern with peripheral vision loss. If you don't stop the seizures, that's the paramount thing that's so important. Yeah, I think I, that it's such an important message to get across to parents is that stopping these seizures is so much more important than the ugly side effects. And I, you know, I can say, having experienced giving my child all three of those medications on multiple occasions because unfortunately my daughter was one where the drugs would work for a short period of time and then unfortunately the spasms would return be it a couple months later or a year later um and so we just kept trying different things and um and her brain, unfortunately, always found a way to work around the treatment. Her brain was just set on seizing, I suppose. Um, but it, it the, the, I mean, there isn't one, I don't th think that's, you know, it's, it's really a conversation that you have to have with your doctor and figuring out what is the best. And if you do have an underlying cause, helping that try to determine the best medication choice. But the most important thing is to get on one of those three medications as quickly, as quickly as possible. So what does successful treatment of infantile spasms look like with one of these three medications? So successful treatment is what we're all aiming for. It's the best case scenario. Um, and I think of it as rebooting the computer. Things were going wrong and we, start with, you know, high doses of medicines and we see those spasms melt away. And that might look like um, a cluster of spasms that used to last for 30 minutes, it becomes 10 minutes, five minutes, two spasms, one spasm and it's gone. Um, or they may become less and less obvious, um, even for parents who know exactly what they're looking for. And at the same time, the baby's becomes brighter. Um, and starts to re-engage. Um, if they had any kind of developmental regression, you might start to see skills um, develop. So I had a, a 
baby uh, years ago now, but who responded beautifully to ACTH and that child had, um, she'd been sitting and like starting to crawl when her spasms began. Um, and by a month of treatment, she was walking and she was bright and ready to go. And, you know, that's what we're looking for is a the seizures go away and the baby's engaged. Now we'll, we'll follow on EEG. And part of that is um, we wanna see the EEG clean up and look as normal as possible. But the most important thing is how the baby's doing. Um, one of the thing, the reasons we'll repeat the EEG is sometimes those spasms can become so subtle that we really can't tell unless we have a video and an EEG running at the same time so we can compare. Um, and if we're, if we're that close, um, we might, push for another week or two of higher dose medicine just to kind of finish things out strong uh, so that we have the best possible outcome. Now, my situation was uh, with my daughter, Adelaide, was extreme. And so I, I always am wary of any parent who is walking into this diagnosis to necessarily compare to my family's story because it is on this very extreme end of the spectrum. But for my daughter, the, the spasms did come back. Uh, along with other seizure types. What does that recurrence look like? And is that something that all parents need to be aware of? Absolutely. So even if we get that best case scenario where the seizures seem to be going away, um, we're going to be in close touch, right? And be watching that baby carefully because it is possible that spasms could recur, after, especially after we taper them down off of those medicines um, or that other seizures could arise and we need to know what to look for. Oftentimes by the time we're treating infantile spasms, we have, and we've gone through a diagnostic workup, so baby's had a brain MRI or they've had genetic testing, that'll help us to understand what the risk is of other kinds of seizures or recurrent infantile spasms. Um, and that will help us with guiding families about what to look for and what to expect. Um, but it is not uncommon, unfortunately, uh, that children will have a recurrence of their infantile spasms even after they seem to have resolved. And then it's a case-by-case -case basis about, you know, maybe they responded so well the first time to a treatment, maybe we wanna go back to that same treatment because we just need a second round. Maybe um, we need to try a different one. So maybe the baby was on Figabitrin before and we're gonna switch to prednisolone or ACTH or vice versa, um, depending on each individual situation. But I think the main thing is if you have a sense, I'm worried that something's going wrong and the seizures are back, to pick up the phone right away and call your neurologist and get seen again quickly so that we can, again, restart the right therapy and make sure we're doing the right thing for our baby. So given how difficult it can be for a parent to understand IS, and it was mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, a pediatrician may not uh, see a lot of IS patients over the course of their career. Are there guidelines in place to help physicians diagnose infantile spasms? Right. So infantile spasms can be difficult to diagnose, but the good news is that we have good consensus around those three standard treatments. And we have guidelines from the American Academy of Neurology and the Child Neurology Society about how to start those treatments. We also have guidance from, again, Child Neurology Society and the Pediatric Epilepsy Research Consortium about how to 
do efficient uh, diagnosis and treatment initiation in the era of the COVID pandemic, where we had to change some of our medical practice, um, but still want to highlight that early diagnosis and treatment is an emergency. And so we don't want to let the COVID pandemic get in the, in the play in the way of um, getting that diagnosis and treatment in place. Um, and it doesn't matter what the reason is for the infantile spasms, no matter what, the earlier we can make that diagnosis and start the right medicine, the better the infant will do. Join us for part two, where we focus on the research currently being done on infantile spasms and the hope that it promises. Part two will be available to download and stream on Wednesday, December 15th at Cure Epilepsy's website, YouTube channel, and most podcasting platforms. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.